This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, we've talked about digital activism quite a bit this year. You know what I mean. We're talking about trying to change the world through your social feed. There is a very specific part of digital activism, though, that's taking off. Filter activism. So how can using a free filter on TikTok actually raise thousands of dollars for a cause that you believe in? And how do you know who or what you might be raising money for when you pick a filter? We've got that chat coming up because you've probably seen the watermelon filter raising money for Gaza. Maybe you've wondered if that's legit. We'll explain how it all works later. Have you seen Last Stop Larimer? I know a lot of people are talking about this. It's the wild doco that's put this tiny outback Australian town front and centre around the world. We're going to speak to one of the journalists who's been covering this case for years. First, though. Tack. We want to see the next steps towards sustainable ceasefire, but that it could not be one-sided. On Triple J. Yeah, there's been no louder message coming from protests around the world over Gaza than ceasefire now. And today, the huge news that a ceasefire has been signed off on. Israel and Hamas have negotiated a deal that's going to see at least 50 hostages released from Gaza while there's a pause in fighting. Now, it's been more than six weeks since Hamas took hundreds of hostages from Israel and a deadly bombardment of Gaza started. In a bit, we're talking to an expert in ceasefires to figure out what this means and if it's likely to last. First, though, here's Joe Lauder. Israel's cabinet signed off on the deal earlier today. So there's initially going to be a four-day ceasefire. And in that time, 50 hostages, all women and children who are being held by Hamas, will be released. Colonel Jonathan Konikas is a spokesman for the Israeli Defence Force. Uh, The Israeli government has voted, has decided, and it will be upon the IDF to execute that decision on the Israeli part. We will do so while remaining vigilant on the ground. The Israeli government's also agreed to extend the ceasefire by an extra day for every 10 extra hostages released. Israel has apparently committed to not attacking or arresting anyone in all of Gaza during the ceasefire period. And in those four days, all air traffic will completely stop in southern Gaza and for six hours a day in the north. In exchange, as many as 150 Palestinian prisoners are also going to be released. The good thing is that it's not uh, heavy terrorists with um, significant crimes in their records, but uh, women and children. I think that was a, a very strong condition of the government of Israel. It's not exactly clear when the ceasefire will start, but Israeli media is reporting that the first hostages could be back home on Friday morning Australian time. Three Americans are among the hostages who are being released, including a three-year-old girl whose parents were killed by Hamas on October 7. 300 aid trucks and fuel will also go into Gaza during the pause. After the announcement, Hamas released this statement on Telegram. After many days of difficult and complex negotiations, we announce, with the help and blessing of God, that we have reached a humanitarian truce. While we now announce the arrival of the truce agreement, we affirm that our hands will remain on the trigger and our triumphant brigades will remain on the lookout to defend our people and to defeat the occupation and aggression. But this isn't an end to the war. There's a very clear understanding in Israeli society and at the top of our government that as soon as the deal is successfully completed, Fighting will continue and we will continue to dismantle Hamas. And the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has made that clear. 
Outside, there is a lot of nonsense talk, as if after we cease fire for the release of the hostages, we will stop the war. So I would like to clarify, we are at war and we will continue to fight, continue to fight until we reach all our goals. We will not let go until we reach the absolute victory and until we bring them all back. Back home, the Foreign Minister Penny Wong responded to the news. This is an important and necessary step, but what we must ultimately work towards is a long-term enduring peace. And I again reiterate uh, that a long-term enduring peace requires a two-state solution, uh, with Israelis and Palestinians living securely and prosperously within internationally recognised borders. Hack on Triple J. Joe Lauder with that update. Huge news out of Gaza. Let's get more into what this actually means. How we can expect it to play out over the next week with someone who knows a lot about ceasefires in the Middle East. Marika Sosnowski is with the University of Melbourne Law School. She's with us now. G'day, Marika. Thanks for coming on Hack. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dave. There have been global calls for a ceasefire in Gaza for weeks now. An agreement has been signed off by Israeli politicians, 50 hostages to be released by Hamas in exchange for a four-day pause in fighting. What I want to know is, is this technically a ceasefire? Because there's different names that people use for it. Is it a humanitarian pause? Is it a ceasefire? What would you call this? There has been a lot of names uh, used for what we commonly refer to as a ceasefire. So basically the broad definition of a ceasefire is basically any agreement between parties to a conflict, or it can also be a unilateral declaration um, to stop fighting for a period of time. So basically in the current Gaza uh, war conflict between Israel and Hamas, there has been already a number of what I would call ceasefires. So Prime Minister Netanyahu has called tactical little pauses for our humanitarian pauses. Um, We've also seen them in the Gaza conflict so far. And we've also had a Security Council resolution which has called for an extended humanitarian pause. And just to say that Security Council resolution has been, is, you know, binding on parties. Security Council resolutions are binding. So already in the course of the sort of six to seven week conflict, we've seen, you know, a number of ceasefires and this latest one that involves uh, the hostages, 50 hostages as you said being released in exchange for uh, Palestinian prisoners from Israeli jails and then a four or a five day um, humanitarian pause again or a ceasefire. Right, so a lot of those terms that people might hear, whether it's truce, armistice, uh, cessation of hostilities, a humanitarian pause, window of silence was one that was used, they kind of mean the same thing. I think there's that broader definition of ceasefires, most certainly. And I think what parties do generally, you know, whether they be state parties to the conflict or whether they're non-state actors like Hamas in this case, what they do is try to use different terminology for different ends. So sometimes they can be political ends. For example, Netanyahu didn't want to agree to a ceasefire because he saw, you know, that particular word because he saw that as being potentially more binding uh, than, say, what he has called tactical little pauses or humanitarian... the US has called humanitarian pauses. I also think there's kind of a a marketing strategy in it as well in that if states or actors call things a humanitarian pause or we have something like a humanitarian corridor, that gives the impression to people that these things might be positive and beneficial. We hear the word humanitarian and we think, oh, that might be a good thing. When in effect, uh, a lot of, you know, not so good things can happen under the terms of those kind of agreements. So we've seen humanitarian corridors 
Shores, for example, set up as part of a number of agreements already in this current conflict that have directed civilians in Gaza to the south of the country. But the south of the country continues to be bombed by Israel. So they're not in any way necessarily safer if they go to the south of the country under the humanitarian corridors that these ceasefires set up. Interesting. So ceasefires themselves can be problematic in a way. In in some respects, uh, it may not all be as positive as people uh, from the outside, from our perspective, may view them. Exactly, yeah. And look, ceasefires are the best kind of thing that humans have so far devised to stop the violence of armed conflict for a period of time, right? But in saying that, and as a researcher, I've researched ceasefires in the Syrian context for a long time. I think what my research has shown is we just have to be a little bit careful about always thinking that the effects of ceasefires are always going to be positive and beneficial when often, or sometimes at least, they're not. Interesting. Um, Do you expect this ceasefire will be respected? Like generally these kinds of ceasefires that are agreed to, whether it be in Gaza or in other parts of the Middle East, do they last for the intended duration? I think this particular one that's just happened now with the four-day ceasefire, four or five days that they've agreed to so far. I mean, what's interesting about this is there is uh, the ceasefire itself is really in many ways just to enable the logistics around the hostage and prisoner swap, as far as I understand. There is a little bit of provision for humanitarian aid to come in under uh, the terms of the ceasefire. But what's really interesting um, is my understanding is there's this agreement was actually quite a long document that was agreed to, so six or so pages that was agreed to by the parties to the conflict. So Israeli, Israelis, Hamas, with the help of Qatar and then US involvement there too. But we don't know that all the terms of that ceasefire agreement are secret. We don't know what exactly they are. So it's very difficult if we don't know what they are to the parties to that agreement to be held accountable to those terms, basically. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with ceasefire expert, lawyer Marika Sosnowski about the hostage release in Gaza, pause in fighting agreed to by Israel over the past day. Marika, as you just mentioned, there are other parties involved in these agreements. Like, it's more than just Israel and Hamas, right? It's other countries too. That's right. In this particular case, my understanding is that uh, Israel won't have direct negotiations with Hamas as a non-state actor that it considers a terrorist organisation. So Qatar has been uh, the intermediary between the Israelis and Hamas representatives. And that's often the case with ceasefire agreements. There's There's a negotiation or there's some sort of form of intermediary that sort of shuttles between the parties. There's this obvious motivation for a longer pause in fighting as well. Like Israeli officials have said, uh, you know, the release of every extra 10 hostages will mean that there'll be one extra day in the pause. Is that unusual or is that generally how these kind of agreements work to incentivise like that? I mean, there's no specific rules or laws that govern ceasefires. So effectively what ceasefires contain can be anything that the parties dream up. I mean, I feel like this term is very cynical and it's sad that it's come to the point when 10 lives of hostages equals a day of lack of bombardment, but um, here, here we are. But I think really in this case, I mean, the ceasefire, whether it's four or five days, it's kind of just the tip of the iceberg and what ha- has to happen, you know, going forward, whether it's an extra day, whether it's four days, 
you know, four months, <laughs> it's really just the start of a very long political process that needs to happen to make, you know, Israelis and Palestinians secure and safe uh, going forward. Marika Sosnowski from the Uni of Melbourne Law School, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Pleasure, Dave. Thanks. And obviously a, a very, you know, uh, interesting few days ahead. We'll be keeping an eye on what does happen, keeping you across all the major developments. Hack. People are using this TikTok filter to help the people in Gaza. All you have to do is play this game, post the video, you will generate revenue. On Triple Jack. Yeah, have you seen the watermelon filter on TikTok? It's basically a game where you collect watermelon seeds and the creator of this filter says when you use it, it raises money, which she'll donate to charities in Gaza. How does it work, though? And what are these so-called filters for good? Well, they're the latest trend in digital activism. Millions of people are getting involved. Are they legit, though? I want to find out more with someone who's been studying them for a bit. Crystal Aberdeen is a professor of internet studies at Curtin University. She's also the founder of the TikTok Cultures Research Network, and she's with us now. Crystal, thank you for coming on Hack. These filters for good on TikTok, how do they make money? That's what people are going to be thinking right now listening. Like, how does something that you chuck on your phone or a little game that you play generate an income when you're not paying for it? I know, right? It sounds like one of those magical things that's happening. Well, here's a quick history. Prior to 2022, filters on TikTok were primarily made or produced by TikTok. But later on in 2022, TikTok launched what they called Effects House. It's basically an app and an editor that allows any TikTok user to make AR or augmented reality effects filters. But very importantly, they were also making very visible analytics, which meant that you could track which filters were doing well, which one. Later on, sometime in May this year, TikTok pledged $6 million US dollars towards what they called an effects house creator fund, saying that, you know, these creations and these filters, the ones that are the most visible and most used, will monetize them, will pay the creator of the filter. And that was, of course, met with some joy, but the threshold for being able to join this program was still very high. However, just last month, the game completely changed. The Effects House program now has lower eligibility. More people get to use it across more countries, including Australia. It's more accessible and there is a new payout system. So, I mean, the threshold is pretty high in the sense that, you know, your effect needs to be used hundreds of thousands of times in the first few months to be eligible. Mm -hmm. And I guess the other issue here is that are you just trusting the creator to send the proceeds on to the good cause that you think you're supporting? Yeah, from what we can see right now with the Filter for Good case study, it being the first of its kind, there is not yet any transparent route or trajectory for how the creator is going to channel the funds despite the initial promises and how they drew a quote-unquote PR around the filter. Because as it stands, the effects creator rewards basically just tells us, if you qualify, if there are enough videos that use the filter, we pay the creator. But what the creator does with the money after is really up to them for now. It's really interesting because we've spoken a lot about digital activism on Hack before, especially this year, over the past few months especially. This specific kind of filter activism, do you think that's going to be the next big thing for young people and that it's actually going to make a difference? Well, I feel like there is the risk of calling everything that happens on TikTok the next big thing. 
but there's of course a lot of history behind these. So let's take for example filters on Facebook. You know, even people who are middle age, and I often jokingly say with affection, the grandparent generation, the silverhead users on Facebook. They are also really famously enjoying filtered profile pictures on Facebook that you can use to represent any cause possible. So using filters as a sign of solidarity to indicate support or indicate activist causes is not new. What is new here is the direct link between using the filter and the platform pledging money to the filter creator. Because previous to this, when people were using filters to spread a cause. There was just the generation of visibility and awareness. Right now on TikTok, that visibility and awareness is also intricately tied to a tangible amount of money that the platform says it will pay out to the filter creator. So that's where the game has changed here. If we talk about moving from selectivism or clicktivism. To there being money where this action is happening, and do you think a lot of young people using these filters actually are aware of and endorse the bigger political messages that might be behind them? It depends on where they live on TikTok. So for those of us who are very familiar with the platform, there is vernacular known as X Talk. You know, you live on Book Talk, you live on Aussie Talk, you live on K-pop Talk. So depending on which silo or which subculture you are most on on TikTok. You may be very keenly aware of these issues, or you may not know about them at all. What is very certain, though, is that when these filters that are trending are promoted by the app to the user, from the user experience point of view, we don't always go and research Google or study what the backstory of the filter is. It often feels like just a game, just a trend, just another viral moment. And people may use the filter as it's intended to be to feature augmented reality in their videos, but they may not know about the specific social or political cause tied to it. Let alone where potential money attached to this and their users may go to. There's a lot of bandwagoning on TikTok, you see. So even if people are using it in the first few hours, the first few days, and then it generates enough visibility and money, it's difficult to backpedal and then remove your use or remove your views. After the moment has passed, well, it's definitely something we're going to be seeing a lot more of, and people would have been noticing on their feeds already. Crystal Avedin, a professor of internet studies at Curtin University, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Oh, good. Thanks for having me, Dave. Hack. Last stop, Larimer is one of the most fascinating documentaries you will ever see on Triple J. Hey, what have you been watching lately? Because maybe you've scrolled past the doco Last Stop Larimer and thought, what's that about? Or all of your mates have been talking about it. You haven't really got into it yet. Or maybe you are in deep and know exactly what this is. It's about a guy who went missing in regional Australia years ago, and people around the world are obsessed. It's set in outback Australia. Some people are saying they've got to turn the subtitles on to understand some of the thick Aussie accents. Some have called it the next Tiger King. I don't know what you think of that. Have you seen it? What did you make of it? Message in 0439757555. In a sec, we're going to speak to one of the journalists who's in this doco about the impact it has had around the world. But first, here's April McLennan with a bit of a recap. And spoiler alert, there are a couple of minor spoilers in here, not major ones. So if you haven't seen it yet, maybe you want to just be careful of those. Under the blazing hot sun of Outback Australia, you'll find the town of Larimer. It's about 500 kilometres southeast of Darwin in the Northern Territory. It's a pretty remote place. There's one road in and one road out, the local pub and a pet croc. 
As to who lives here, there's a population of 11 people. At least there used to be. G'day. There we go, folks. Looking for a, a beer. Yeah. A can, please. Thanks, mate. Jeez, you're a darling. <laughs> That's Paddy Moriarty. He vanished along with his dog, Kelly, in December 2017. Brother, we're coming into town. Hey, we're coming in for a beer. Good boy. The pair haven't been seen since, and everyone in Larimer instantly became a suspect. From this Outback mystery, the doco series Last Stop Larimer was born. What's your relationship with Paddy? Did you knock Paddy off? Where's Paddy's body? Do you know what happened to you involved? I don't know nothing. Throughout the investigative series, we hear from most of the people living in the town. And while smashing a few tinnies, stopping to take a piss or smoking a ciggy, the locals give their theories on what they think happened to old Paddy and his dog. Paddy Rock, definitely not an angel. <laughs> what happened with Paddy? That's been on the agenda for a long time. Perhaps Paddy was murdered and put into some pies. What's stopping Barry from beating to the crocodile? That's why the crocodile's fat. It's revealed there's been a huge blow-up in Larimer over who sells the best pies. Like, I'm talking meat pies or camel pies or whatever the hell's in them. And also, everyone in this town basically hates each other. What do you like about living here in this place? Oh, I love it. I don't mind it. I'll come up to the pub here and have a good drink and everything like that. Meet Barry, all the locals, you know. Well, I won't say too much about everyone, but... Oh, well, let's, let's talk about that a bit. How, how does everyone get on in this little town? They don't. Everyone's become pretty obsessed with this story, like people are calling it the next Tiger King. And my algorithm's been flooded with fan theories on who done it. My number one suspect in this is the crocodile. They're called patty pies. Mm, eat up everyone. Eat the evidence. Nom, 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 nom. That's awful, no. But like, oh my God. Paddy was a nice guy, but he was a bit of a shit stirrer and a lot of people were pissed off at him at this town. And there's been some pretty funny reactions from around the world, with people shook after getting a glimpse into the life of a true blue Aussie living in the deep outback. It's not doing a lot for Australian stereotypes, I will say, between the, the constant beers and the bare knuckle fighting and the crocodiles. They love a few beers. All they want is a joke and a laugh and a couple of beers. And it's like selling that crocodile Dundee image yep. of Australia the world. <laughs> And while this is actually a really heartbreaking story about a man and his dog who went missing, it's so bizarre that people have actually started their own investigations to try and figure out what happened to Paddy Moriarty. A small town in the middle of nowhere with 11 people. Like, that's going to be an open and shut case. Holy shit. 11 people. It could have been any one of them. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, definitely... Got a lot of people talking. April McLennan with that update, Last Stop Larimer. People messaging in with their thoughts, opinions on the show. I want to have a chat with someone who knows this story very well. Christy O'Brien is an ABC reporter who covered this case. If you've watched the doco, you'll know her from that. And she's been covering this story for years. She knows all about it. Hey, Christy, thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you for having me. Are you blown away by just how big this story's become? 
out of the water. Like, cannot believe it. And the funny thing is, I thought it would be this little indie doc kind of notion. Yeah. Uh, and then someone texted me and was like, you're on Netflix. And I was like, yeah, yeah, but, you know, it won't really, like, it's a documentary. It, you know, it's a very niche interest. And then it started sort of going into the top ten, top five, top three. I think it hit number one at one point and I was wow. like, oh, God, this is a really, really big show. <laughs> so why do you think it exploded like this? My position on this is that there is an utter fascination with Outback Australia that has existed for time immortal. But then I think that there is also a even greater obsession with the Northern Territory and our remote towns. I think that isolation does something to people. I think it can have positives. I've seen people absolutely thrive and show innovation because they are on their own. But I think it also can be a place that brings out passion and emotions in a bigger way and also big personalities. Like I've always said that my career is only what it has been because I have such crazy, mad personalities here to tap into. And I think that probably goes for Larimer. When did you start to first hear about this case? Yeah, so I was the chief of staff at the time when I first started to hear about this. It was over the Christmas break. It is a time where, you know, you kind of don't expect too much to happen, I have to say. And then this case came up, but initially it was really treated as a missing person case in the sense of not so much a murder, maybe just wandered off. There was no history of dementia or anything, but it's sort of a a false assumption I guess we sometimes make in the newsroom that maybe there is just a a misadventure in a very innocent sense. That quickly changed though, you know, it became apparent that there was a lot of motive and then there was the fact that he was missing for so long, his dog was missing. There was some really key clues that indicated that there had been foul play. His hat was there. He was a man that was never seen without his hat. His dinner was still in the microwave for the dog. Like there was a few really odd things that that started to emerge. So then it shifted into, I went on to producing a 7.30 story about the case. And that's when I started to really deep dive into this case. So we were presented with those old tapes that appear on the documentary, which my former boss, Murray McLaughlin, had done a, I guess, an embed in the town and he just sort of interviewed everyone and that became such important footage. I remember watching that tape and and they were just so sinister in light of Paddy's disappearance. And then obviously we realised that there was this entire backstory of hatred and fueled by this utter resentment for each other. And and that kind of, it's almost like a, a family fight or something where you, you're going, okay, but what's the root cause? Where did this all begin? And it wasn't that clear. There was just so much layering of resentment and contempt for each other that was really hard to pinpoint as to who was talking to who. And so then we went to the town, obviously, to conduct our own reporting. And it was a spooky place. And there were times where, especially at the start, I was really of the view it could be any number of people in this town. And that's not a great feeling when you're in a very isolated town trying to uncover something. But I do say to people, we deliberately decided to stay out of the town just for our own comfort, I suppose. Oh, wow. (laughs) It's fascinating. I mean, can you explain what kind of community Larimer is? Yeah, it's it's, it's as tiny as they get. It was in its heyday in the war, certainly a really important base for the soldiers. But that has died 
right away. Like so many towns in regional Australia, it has had its heyday well and truly. It's got a pub, it's got the pie shop, and then that's pretty much it. A phone box and a crocodile was basically the summary of what was what was in that town. There's no reception, so there is really limited contact with the outside world. That also made it very hard to do the investigation. So much of, I think, what police do now in regards to tracking people's movements, their phone calls, it is done by intercepting or, or tracing mobile communication. And the fact that that was off the table, I know, made it very hard for police. Oh, it's um, something that you can't even create in your imagination. It seems like the perfect setting for the perfect story. <laughs> exactly. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese speaking with ABC reporter Christy O'Brien about the Netflix doco that's blown up around the world, Last Stop Larimer, put this tiny NT community in the spotlight. Christy, have you been speaking to locals or have you heard about how their lives have changed since the documentary? I haven't, and it has been a, a point of interest for me. I did wonder how they found their portrayal. I was concerned it would be a bit of a, a piss take, for want of a better word, but I feel like the doco didn't do that. I think certainly there's the quirk and the you know the entertainment side of it, but I think there is also a sympathetic lens to it as well. I am a bit reluctant to step foot in the town again, and most of the town has changed now, really. like uh, So many of those key people are no longer there. If you haven't seen this yet, this chat with Christy has probably got you racing home <laughs> to go put it on. ABC reporter Christy O'Brien, really appreciate you coming on Hack. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Dave. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. Joe Lauder's going to be with you tomorrow for the podcast. I'll be back with the shake up on Friday. Can't wait. Catch you then. Bye.